morning. I'm so proud of you for braving that weather. Pretty scary out there. I hope I don't say anything God doesn't approve of. Not that he needs rain clouds to shoot lightning, I got to tell you. Well, what a wonderful week we had last week. It was so beautiful to have a, a time of prayer with you and to um, have you all, uh, representatives from the congregation, come up here and share their prayer life with us. That's really what they do. It should be an encouragement to all of us to hear, uh, to hear someone else pray and hear what their relationship with God sounds like. Well, we're going to get right into it this week, but before we do that, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. God, we are aware that you are real, that you exist by the works of your hands. You have declared your glory. You have declared your power. You have declared your goodness by the word of your Holy Spirit, which you have given to us. You have declared your name. You have declared who you are. And we know now, God, that you have declared for us why you have made us and what our ultimate destiny is. It is my prayer, Lord, that these doctrines will be a source of comfort to your people and will be a challenge to those who have not yet accepted Christ as their Savior. Holy Spirit, come and do the work that only you can do. Give life to dead hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. It is a true thing to say that all theology, all of doctrine, what we learn about God's word, is a source of comfort to God's people. All of it. It is there to comfort God's people. But all doctrine is a source of terror to those who are not God's people. And on any given Sunday in this church building, there are two types of people here. There are people who are God's people, who have received Christ as their Savior, and there are people who have yet to receive Christ as Savior. And this message will have two different effects. And so when we come into church and we sit here as believers, we ought to expect to be comforted and to be, to be challenged. A good sermon both sings and stings. We ought to be comforted and challenged to be more Christ-like. But to those who are here who have not received the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message which the apostles have declared to us that came by the prophets through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit in the word of God, for those of you who have not received Christ Jesus, it is today that God has given to you a day of favor to hear the gospel, to repent of your sins, and to come and enjoy the comforts of his word. I want to give a review of what we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks. We looked first 
in our basic Christianity series at believing in God, and then we looked second at knowing God. So we first talked about a, a metaphysical precondition. What, what do we have to have? What, what beliefs do we have to have in order to be a Christian? And one of the most fundamental beliefs today is that we have to, be, or, or fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith is that we have to believe that God exists. And if you can imagine, there are people all over the world who call themselves Christians who actually don't believe that God exists. Here's what they say. They say that Jesus was a great moral teacher, the greatest to ever live, and that they follow the teachings of Jesus, but that the things that were said about Jesus concerning his divinity, we now know to be untrue in light of the scientific revolution. So they take Jesus as a great moral teacher, follow him in their life, but they don't follow all that Jesus said. And so in that way, they call themselves Christians because they follow Jesus. Now, Paul, Peter, Luke, Matthew, Mark, James, John, all say something different about knowing Jesus. That to know him is to believe all about Jesus, to not just expect, accept him as a great teacher, but as the Lord of heaven and of earth. And so we have to emphasize at the beginning, because of these false teachings, that a proper belief in God is properly basic to being a Christian. You cannot deny God's existence and be a Christian. So believing in God is a precondition for the Christian life. This belief in God is based on the testimony of the Bible and the revelation of nature through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So we know that God exists as he has revealed himself in nature, as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. Nature, we learned, reveals to us that there must be a God who created all things. We looked at the various arguments for God's existence and why it is completely rational, dare I say, the only rational worldview to have, namely that God exists. The Bible even tells us as much that what may be known about God is plain to them, plain to all people, by what has been made. It is clear from the evidence of creation that God exists because our very existence is contingent upon a creator God. And we looked at some of the various arguments. But we also learned that scripture reveals to us specifically who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can know through our observation of science and reason that there must be a God who exists. But it is only scripture that reveals to us his name, reveals to us who he truly is. And the Bible tells us that God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. That this is one God in three persons. And so whether we can wrap our minds around that, we cannot. Nevertheless, it is who God is. And we should expect that a being who is beyond finding out will review or will reveal things to us that we will not understand, but we must nevertheless accept. But from there we went to simply, or we moved from knowing 
that there must be a God to now knowing who God is. And we determine in this series that the Christian life is an irreducibly complex thing. That is, that we must have a true knowledge of God that manifests itself in true worship. The first two commandments in the Decalogue, or what are called the Ten Commandments, is to have no other gods before me and to not make any graven images of anything either in heaven or on earth or under earth. There's nothing that we are to carve, even God's very own visage in the person of Jesus Christ, or statues of angels, we are not to worship those things. We are to worship the true God only, and we are to worship the true God truly. Because God has revealed himself in this way, because he is creator and has created all things, he is the owner of all things, and he determines how he is to be worshipped. It is not for us to say based upon our own idolatrous heart, to make God in our own image so that he might function in the sky as a genie that is there to answer all of our desires, we are to worship God according to how he has revealed himself, whether or not we like what he's revealed. And if we don't like what God has revealed, the problem is not with God, but with us. It is our fallen, sinful condition. But the Christian life, you can't have true worship, as we talked about last week, without having true knowledge. You have to know God truly in order to worship Him truly. The two are irreducibly complex. And we learned about anything that's irreducibly complex, not only that we have to have all necessary parts there for it to be sufficient, but that they must be in the proper order. That a person cannot ever truly worship or be a good person without first knowing what God defines as good. So it is essential that we know God truly in order to be true Christians. The two go hand in hand. You cannot worship God on your own terms. And there are various consequences for this. In reality, it's why we must have a good teaching and preaching church so that we know who God is, that we might be true worshipers of him, offering our bodies, our entire person, as sacrifices, living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to him. We learn that a true Christian character is only ever truly formed in the proper worship of God. And that the proper worship of God is only ever produced in the true knowledge of God. They are irreducibly complex. You say, why why make such a big deal about the true worship of God? I can worship God on the boat. Uh, I can worship God when I'm out hunting. This has become increasingly popular today as people try and leave the church and leave the body of Christ and try and have worship on their own. What they are really trying to do is have their Christian life on their own terms. That's what Satan loves to do with Christians. He loves to separate them from the body. That's what any good predator does. A good predator knows that he must divide his prey from the pack. Just watch those those nature shows on National Geographic. I know it's hard to watch, but you might learn a thing or two about the devil. 
the lion doesn't go for the biggest and baddest. He goes for the easiest kill. And the easiest kill is always the animal that's furthest away from the flock. And so we know, Satan knows that if he can get you out of the church, if he can get you to focus, you ought to read the book Screw Tape Letters. If he can get you to focus on everything but the message and make you angry about somebody in the church, he can divide you from the flock so that he can devour you. And so we've taught ourselves today to say things like, I can worship God away from the community of God and on my own terms, but the proper worship of God is only ever produced in the true knowledge of God, and what God has done is built his church. The word church simply means a gathering in his name. We are a gathering under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are not simply a group who got together this morning. We are a group who has gotten together on Sunday morning as we declare by our very actions and by our very presence that Christ has risen and will return to the earth again. And we are his disciples. We must know God. And so Paul says in all of the knowledge of God as he gets to chapter 12, the first 11 chapters are this beautiful doctrine, uh, uh, explanation of doctrine of Paul of what God has done in the gospel. And then he says to the church, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Everything that we know about God, true doctrine of what God is doing. I appeal to you by that to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You cannot have a holy and pleasing life of worship apart from the true mercies, understanding the true mercies of God. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How will I renew my mind? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, all declared by God in His Word. So that we must have the word of God and out of that understanding of the true knowledge of God, we might be holy and pleasing to him by living lives in accordance with his revelation. And now we move to our third series in basic Christianity, God's decree. In the first series, we knew that God was. So believing in God, it was a question of that, that God is In the second, it was knowing God. It was a sense of who this God is. It's not enough to believe that there is a God. We must know who he is and know who he is truly. But now we're going to look at what God has done, when he will do it, and how he will do it. I want to give my statement, my theological statement of what this doctrine means. We are speaking about the doctrine of God's decree. If you look up in an English dictionary what the word decree means, it has a sense of kingly authority, a declaration by a decree or by a king. It is a decree that this thing shall come to pass. It's law. But in a heavenly sense it cannot be thwarted, it cannot be disobeyed without there being real consequences. But it is so much more than that. I want to look at this. Here is the definition. God's decree refers to his right as the Lord to determine from before the foundation of the earth 
everything that will ever come to pass. God's decree refers to his right as the Lord to determine from before the foundation of the earth everything that will ever come to pass. Everything, including but not limited to the actions of men, has been decreed by God from before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glory alone. Parents, you're going to have your children ask you, maybe your teenagers, why did God create us? Why are we here? It's an old philosophical question. Why is there anything rather than nothing? But it's a little bit more specific. Why did God create us? And the answer is this. Everything, including but not limited to the actions of men, has been decreed by God from before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glory alone. In other words, God did it because he willed to do it. Because it was his desire to do it. And to do it this way and not any other way. No thing and no one can limit God nor thwart any of his plans. What he decrees has, is, and will come to pass within his creation. I hear people say to me from time to time, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God a couple of things. Make sure I'm there for that moment. Stephen Fry said, he said something to the effect of, I'm going to ask God, how dare you give bone cancer to children? Hey, listen, for just a second, that's a hard question to ask. God's all loving. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He would want to cure bone cancer. He has the power to cure bone cancer. He has the knowledge to cure bone cancer. Why doesn't he do it? You see, this doctrine puts us in our proper place as human beings under the authority of God and says we are the creation. We have no right to ask why God has done what he has done. He is the Lord and he will do what pleases him. He is God. You don't know better than God. You think you know that he should get rid of bone cancer in children. And anyone who has ever endured such a horrific experience feels the same way and knows what it is to say, why God are you doing this? It is just like Job. Why God have you taken away everything? But in the midst of losing everything, the Bible says that God that Job worshipped God, and in all that he did, he did not sin by accusing God of doing evil. True faith in God is accepting what God does, even when we don't agree with it. 
We're trying to do this in society more and more. We're trying to make everything palatable. John, my brother-in-law, just told me that Google has, <clears throat> has taken a chopped boiled egg out of their salad emoji because it offended vegans. At what point, as Stephanie, my, my lovely wife, says, at what point do we look at each other and say, this is silly, right? But we've got this idea that we can make everyone in this world be non-offensive. And I can tell you, God doesn't play that game. He does what he wills, and he does what is good, and he does what pleases him. That this world contains evil, however, does not in any way damage God's decree. God is good, evil exists, and God has sovereignly decreed that the evil actions of angels and humans be to the fulfillment of his own perfect will. So that Joseph may say to his brothers... What you have done for evil, the Lord has done for good. Furthermore, the way in which God sovereignly ordains to bring about his good plan through the evil actions of men is a mystery that God has not chosen to reveal to us. We have to be okay with this. We have to be content with this, that evil exists and God is good, and that the reason for why evil exists, God has not given to us. Except to know that all that the evil that does occur to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, God does so for good. Read the martyrs, the martyrdom of Polycarp, an ancient text. As he was led to the slaughter, he praised God. Read John and Peter. How is it that these men could leave rejoicing after their flogging by the Sanhedrin simply to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name? How is it that God could crush his own son and it be for the good of all the world. This is a mystery. We are to be at peace with this. And it is to be a comfort to us. Nevertheless. We must never be so presumptuous. As to demand an unbiblical resolution to this tension. Which God himself has not resolved between his decree and the existence of evil. This is a great temptation. Why did God permit evil? You see this happen around times, usually around hurricane season. It's usually the season where stupid Christians get on TV and say stupid things about hurricanes. Good old Pat Robertson, right? I mean, I'm just going to call the spade a spade. Everybody's thinking it. Why did the hurricane destroy Louisiana, destroy New Orleans? Because of all the sin, right? As if New Orleans is the only place that has sinners. 
You know, Jesus dealt with this in the scripture. In Luke chapter 13, they came to him and they said, let me ask you, did, did these people who were slaughtered by Pilate, did they, did they get that because of their sin? Are they going to heaven? They were, they were worshiping God. They were slaughtered in the midst of it, which is to be, it is to defile their sacrifices. And Jesus asked them a question, do you think they were any more righteous than the people who the Tower of Siloam fell on? He says, no. Unless all of you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You know, God destroys churches. Don't you watch TV during tornado season? The tornadoes come through churches just like they do strip clubs. You say, but that's not part of God's decree. Let me make this clear again. Everything, everything that happens is part of God's good and righteous decree. I want to talk this morning then about three parts or three ways that we look at God's decree. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at preservation, concurrence, and government. This week, we're going to look at the first part, preservation. Part of God's decree is his preservation. That is that God has made absolutely everything and everything that exists belongs to God and he maintains everything according to the nature which he has given them. God has made absolutely everything. And so we know that God as creator has made everything, but in making everything, he is also the Lord of everything. Your children don't belong to you, they belong to God. Your life does not belong to you, it belongs to God. Your money does not belong to you, it belongs to God. Your car does not belong to you, it belongs to God. The beating of your heart does not belong to you, it belongs to God. The free radical cells in your body don't belong to you, they belong to God. They will form cancer if God chooses. They will not form cancer if God chooses. They will change from cancer to, or from malignancy to benign if God chooses to, everything that exists belongs to God. God preserves everything. Colossians says this. He, that is Christ, is before all things. He's before all things. He made all things. John 1.1. 1, 1. And in him, all things hold together. God has not wound up this clock and let it wind and continue to wind on its own. He determines its every second. And should he remove himself from the equation, everything that exists would cease to exist. God, according to his decree holds all things together. Nothing in all of reality happens outside of God's preservation apart from his decree. Do you know that both Hitler and Stalin... Both Hitler and Stalin declared the word providence before, used the word providence to declare what they were doing. 
You say, certainly that happened outside of God's decree. It did not. Everything happens according to God's decree. But why did he do it? He has not told us. We must be okay with this. It is a cause for praise in us. He preserves all things. It is through every event that happens that God directs and disposes all of history. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. God is the Lord of every moment of this universe. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, God is in complete control of his world. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. It's not something that a person who's not a believer could readily understand. A person who's not a Christian will not understand that everything that happens from the greatest to the least, from the sparrow that falls to the ground to the number of hairs on our head, God's decree is through the preservation and for the preservation of all things according to His glory. You know, some people, they win the lottery, they believe God decreed that. Oh, they thank God for that. But there is often no worship in the midst of suffering. And there is nothing more Christian than worship in the midst of suffering. Nothing. Christ knew what his will, the Father's will was. And yet he went to the cross willingly. It was his joy to fulfill the will of the Father. God is in complete control of his world. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. The word absolute there means extending to all things. John Frame says the world depends on God for everything, and without his permission, it could not continue to exist. This very moment exists because God permits it to exist. Think about that for a moment. We watch television and every few months someone comes out from National Geographic and he tells us that there's a rogue asteroid and it's heading towards Earth and we all get nervous. Or some guy in the middle of Kansas has a vision while out in a cornfield that the world is going to end on December 27th and we all start buying canned foods. Listen to me. The world will end when God says, today is the day. But today, God says, this very moment that we are living in right now is a moment of His grace. Well, why does God continue to preserve the earth? Why does he do it? To this, he does give us an answer in Scripture. Here's what Scripture says. 
Simple truth. God preserves the earth, the heavens and the earth, for the sake of saving his people. God preserves the earth, the heavens and the earth, for the sake of saving his people. Look at what John 6, 39, Jesus says this. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The will of God is to preserve all things that he has given to Christ, that Christ may raise up those things which the Father has given to him on that last day. The earth exists, the heavens and the earth exist, not based upon natural law, but based upon God's decree that all that God has given to the Son will be brought back to life when Christ returns. In 640, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. He now throws the onus on you. Today is the day you are to receive Christ. The most important thing for your life is to be right with God through His Son. To claim God's mercy through His Son, Jesus Christ. All of your sins have been taken away. And you can seize God's gift this morning, this very moment. Of faith in Christ Jesus and eternal life. That's why today is here. It is not here for you to take one more test. It is not here for you to buy a house. It is not here for you to find your mate. The world is here. The world is preserved so that you might be right with God. And in 644, listen, he comes back. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen to what God is saying. God is saying, if you're mine, I'm going to get you. Does God have to send a fish to get you this morning? He will, if he has to. No one, no one will be lost from his grip. Every human that the Father has given that is saved from before the foundation of the world, the Son holds in his hand and you will got got or you will get got. You will be gotten by him. You will never resist his plan lest God fail. But there is a lot a lot, a lot of different ways God can use to get you to come to Him. What will it be? Can you not come simply by the call of the Word this morning? Or will you run from God like Jonah and God send a great storm and a great fish 
to get your attention. What should I do? While we wait for God to save us. You might be asking, what should I do while I wait for God to save me? Well, waiting doesn't mean we sit on our hands. Scripture tells us God saves us. It tells us to come to God. But it tells us that in the midst of this certain salvation that God will achieve, we're to be doing something. Well, what should we do while we wait for God to save us? I want to give you three things to do. Number one, remember God's promises. Number two, remember God's warnings. And number three, remember Christ's return. That word remember is not simply an intellectual assent. Men, when your wife tells you Remember our anniversary is Friday. She is not telling you to simply acknowledge with your brain that you have been married for some amount of time that you can't think of. She is telling you to do something. And she might say something like, oh, don't do anything big. She means do something big. Trust me, because one year I didn't do something big. I did what she told me. Never do what your wife tells you to do. Do more than what your wife tells you to do. Amen. Yes, I hear. We have have some veterans over here on the right side. Amen. It was Dave, of course. I think it was also Cliff there. The point I'm getting you to understand is this. Remember means put your feet to action. Put your hands to action. If you really remember it, do something. So let's look at what Scripture tells us to do. Turn to our 2 Peter 3. I'm nearing the end, but don't get excited. I was 28 minutes last week. Did everybody? How many of you counted the time? Shame on you. Shame on you not about how long we're here. All right, so let's look at this passage. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 15. Uh, Peter is writing a letter potentially to a group of Christians who live in Asia Minor. It's late, probably about 68 A.D. that this letter is written, and there's a problem in the church. The problem that they're facing is that people who claim to be true believers have come in and are teaching false teaching to God's people. Now, the paradigm is incredibly similar to ours today. We have many people who wear crosses, who wear white little, little I don't know what those things are, white little things right here, who wear little beanies and big hats, who have large churches, who are telling us things that sound Christian, 
but aren't really Christian. And so the church has people coming in and they are mocking God's, in Peter's day, mocking God's truth. So listen to what Peter says. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Now, the audience, listen to me, the audience is a body of Christians. Remember, the object of God's preservation is to save His people. This is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. The word stirring up there means I am trying to get you to do something. I am, by my word, moving you towards action. Real action. That what the truth of God tells us should be real in our lives. He says, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That's what we're doing here today. Reading the word of God and by way of reminder, God's people are to be stirred up to real Christian holiness. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In that one verse, Peter encapsulates the entire Bible. You are to remember the teaching of the prophets. You are to remember the teaching of the apostles. That is the Old, that is the New Testament. You are to live by God's Word, believers. So you should remember His promises. That when all of these things around us start to come and tell us a different God, cancer will tell you that tell you of a different God. Suffering tells us of a different God. But God says, don't listen to suffering. Listen to my word. I went in. This was a man dying of cancer. And I went in and I opened the Bible to Romans 8.18. And I simply read to him what Paul said to a believer. He was a believer. Paul says here that the sufferings of this life aren't worth comparing to the glories of the next. His wife said to me, every other pastor who came in told me to wait for the miracle. He said, you're the only one who came in and told us the truth. He died. Not more than two months later. But the truth is, you, you might be saved from that. You might live 20 more years this past week, we celebrated the two-year anniversary of my father's heart attack where every doctor there told us that they were calling him Lazarus. They told us he wouldn't make it. God was the God of yes in that situation. But in the situation of Mr. Acosta or Aponte, it was the God who says no. But either way, God is good. You see, believers, this is a doctrine for your comfort. 
Peter says, the thing you cling to, the thing you hold to, is the word. It's not everything around you. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, but it's preserved by God's decree. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. The word scoffer means those who mock God's truth. Those who laugh at God's truth. Today, to talk God's truth in any public arena is to be scoffed. It is to be laughed at. It is to be mocked. We are told by our world that you only live once. But God tells us that these scoffers will come in, they will lie, but the real truth is there's coming a day where God will return to the earth again. They follow their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, that is, they died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God, and that by the means of, this, of these, the world that existed was deluged, that means a flood, with water and perished. The second thing Peter says is, remember God's warnings. People come in and deliberately, notice what the scoffers do. They don't do this by accident. It is their goal to say what, or say in contradiction to what God's word says. What does God's word say? There was a great flood. The whole earth, save for that of Noah and his family, was destroyed. Things, according to these scoffers, have been this way ever since the beginning. But God gave a warning. I destroyed the earth once. I will destroy it again. Now we know today with all of the rain that nothing is going to flood and kill the entire world. No flood will come. But God doesn't tell us that a flood is coming. He tells us that a consuming fire is coming. He says to them, he already destroyed the world. This is God's warning to us. You think that God is, that, that things have always been the beginning since evolution or since the beginning of time, but that's not the case. God destroyed this world once, he'll do it again. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He says this fire that's coming, just like the waters that came, came for those who are ungodly. Notice that Noah's family was saved in the flood. Because God will save his people. The flood will not destroy God's people. 
The fire will not destroy God's people. God's people will be protected. Christ has promised as much. But the fires are coming. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. He's simply saying time is nothing to God. In one sense, he's saying from God's perspective, a thousand years is like a day. You know how with children, they have a different perspective on time. I'll ask my daughter to draw. All I need you to do is do Give me four O's. Give me four circles. Oh, it's going to take so long. Four circles. All you have to do is trace them. Oh, but it takes too long. And she throws herself down. Because we have a different perspective on time. Well, God and man have a different perspective on time. God doesn't live in time. You know, Americans have a different perspective on time than the rest of the world. We use a clock. Be there at nine. Be there at eight. You, you ought to look at the philosophy of the clock. It's a real thing. We are always under the tyranny of time, of a, of a concept. We have a different concept than God. In other words, people are saying, the scoffers are saying, see, he's never going to come again. And Peter says, you say that in ignorance. It's but a day to God. Should God let this earth tarry for another 10,000 years, it is but 10 days to God. But not only that, it is a difference of intensity. He says... As a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. In other words, we feel the intensity of the long wait for God's return. But God doesn't. But he will come when he chooses. The Lord, therefore, according to Peter, is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now here is the kicker. Peter has been telling and talking to the church the whole time. He says again to them, Beloved, don't overlook this fact that with the Lord the day is one, or, or that, the, that the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill the promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, who, beloved, who are the beloved? God's people. Not wishing that any of his people should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Is that not exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ said? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And I will raise them up on the last day. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The earth will not end by some kind of natural accident. 
it will end by God's divine decree. He's telling believers, believers, God is still coming. It will be like a thief. You don't know when his return is coming. But as we live from this moment of coming to know Christ and we wait for his return, how shall we live? Listen to what he says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent. That means be excited to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Today is the day of salvation. God's patience is simply his preservation of the universe until all that God has decreed will be saved have come in to his fold. What does this do? It prepares our hearts in the light of the knowledge that God will one day destroy this heaven and earth to be reconciled to him and to remember his return in holiness and godliness. You know, we're being told that this is the only life that there is to live. But God tells us that there will be a sudden return and this life will be but a vapor compared to the eternal life. Many of us are living right now for today. We're worried about today. A little speck in comparison to the future of eternity. I want everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. And as Tara comes to play... We're just going to pray, play two stanzas. I want you to remember, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just listen to me. I want you to see this moment the way God sees this moment. See this very moment of breath in your lungs, of your heart beating in your chest as God's moment of salvation for you. But you see, you have to do something. You have to come to Him. The means by which God will bring about our salvation is through our human responsibility to come to Him. This day of salvation, this moment is for you to seize if you have never seized it before so that you might be prepared when Christ returns. Jesus told a parable of ten virgins 
who were awaiting the bridegroom. There were five who were prepared and five who were unprepared. And when the unprepared, when the bridegroom returned suddenly, five of those virgins who were unprepared began to beg the other five who were prepared. But their story was this. We cannot give you our oil. We only have enough for us. Today, you must prepare with your own life for the bridegroom's return. He will return, and you must have your own oil. You cannot light the lamps of your salvation with your mother's oil. She only has enough for herself. You cannot light the lamps of your, of your lamp with the oil of being an American or being born rich or being born a good person. The only oil that will light the lamp of your salvation is Jesus Christ. His blood is the only thing that forgives us. 